0: Hello, free thinkers, I'm Mickey Z, and I welcome you to Post Woke, the New York City-based podcast where we practice intellectual self-defense.
1: But really, if it weren't an open question, the powers that be wouldn't be fighting as hard as they are to, to shovel us misinformation 24 seven
0: excellent point yeah you're right it's it's propaganda would be unnecessary if, yeah. we, were, if we were already fully inside i gotta
1: tell you the aroma of desperation is becoming a lot thicker on a lot of that propaganda
0: the person you just heard is john titus he is an investigative journalist a documentarian a lawyer and an engineer, and I first heard of John Titus just last week when he appeared as a guest on the Defender podcast with Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and after hearing what he had to say, I immediately reached out and booked him on to PostWoke, and you will hear our conversation right after this short word from our sponsor. Hey, Mickey Z here, and I'm asking you to offer some support for a project that I've been running for nearly six years. It's called Helping Homeless Women NYC. And as the name implies, I've been getting out there on the streets for, like I said, nearly six years to offer direct relief to some of the most vulnerable yet fiercest women you'll ever want to meet. If you check the show notes, you will find a direct link for how to donate at GoFundMe, If you're interested in becoming a Patreon patron or in ordering uh, restaurant gift cards directly from my wish list, shoot me an email and I'll send you that information. But I'm just requesting some support, thanking you in advance and asking you no matter what to please share the link far and wide. Now, let's get back to the show. And I'm back with John Titus. John, welcome to PostWoke.
1: Thanks, Mickey. Good to be here.
0: I appreciate you taking time to talk with us. And by way of introduction, I'm going to say that throughout my life, some of my all-time favorite moments are when I realized that something I felt strongly to be true is actually a myth or a hoax, or most likely a cleverly constructed deception. And I've been introduced to your work and it's like a crash course in such epiphanies, like the connections you make within the realm of financial kingmakers force your readers and viewers to reimagine the global chessboard now before i get into some specifics on that if you don't mind i'm curious to know how did you get started doing this kind of work did your previous careers play a role and how the hell are you not more censored
1: um, <laughs> I, I the latter one i don't know i i think because i'm i'm small you know, I mean, I, it, I'm, I've got thirty-five thousand YouTube followers or whatever. Yeah, I, I don't know, but, but you know, and I plus I cover hyper technical monetary issues and sort of really drill down in the legal issues. I, I just think it's too it's complicated. I'm not out there saying, hey, you know, don't take vaccines. You know,
0: yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. When I'm looking at your work, it, it's almost like you've come up with this cheat code that the AI can't pinpoint you as somebody that's, quote unquote, misinformation. But meanwhile, you have you're the furthest thing from misinformation. You're you're so evidence based.
1: Yeah, well, that's that's a product of my training, which was, you know, I was in a, every time I pick a career, the powers that be decide to wreck it. So I was an engineer. But the writing was on the wall in the early early nineties. You know, factories are being closed. So I said, well, you know, I can't do this. This isn't going to, you know, this isn't a long term solution. So I went to I went to law school and got into patent litigation, and that went well for a while. And it was good. It paid well. I learned a lot, and that was really where you know, proving up things, brick by brick, without hand waving and you know the 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 firm I cut my teeth in you know, they didn't lie they they looked at they looked at people who lied in court like it was you know it wasn't like a moral thing it was more like if you have to lie to make your case you're bush league wow. you know, go back to mayberry you're doing something wrong you're not working hard enough you're not researching enough you don't understand the law well enough you don't understand the science you're doing something wrong if you got to lie you need to work harder so that was really that's kind of where I came from in terms of my technique I use with my videos. But what happened there is, you know, again, that, that, that profession kind of got changed and starting in the mid two thousands and I kind of got slowly, you know, the, the hand waivers sort of took over in court. And mm-hmm. so I got more and more, I, I was, there was there more and more distance, less and less satisfied with that. But then the thing that really just, or I, when I wandered off the reservation was the bailouts of 2008. You know, yeah. up until that point, I'd been kind of asleep. You know, not that I was watching TV every day, but I, did, I didn't really question what I was hearing. But with the bailouts, I, by that time, I had started like, wait a minute, what's going on here with mortgage-backed securities and whatever? And I'd started to drill down. And when the bailouts came, it was like everything the media is saying about the bailouts about the banks is a lie and it was a hop skip and a jump to well if they're lying about 21 trillion dollars what aren't they lying about
0: wow, i love that explanation and that question like you you know i've heard you on 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 uh, other podcasts and your videos and you're so um emphatic about the importance of learning to ask the right questions in that one right there if they're if they're lying about the trillions what what else are they lying about? And of course, how could they possibly not be lying about other stuff? So, since you mentioned two thousand eight, I know that you've discussed this in at least one video, or maybe more than one, about what you call a coup d'état that took place that year. Do you believe that would be a good place to sort of introduce um, your style of work and and your techniques and the and the topics that you tackle?
1: Yeah, sure, because that's really when I kind of like, I I, I just sort of walked. I got out. Got out of the corporate mindset like this is this is this is a dead end and it began a long process of of getting away from you know legal work at a corporate level and more into the realm of activism 2008 was a pivotal year okay so would
0: would you you want to walk us through what you call a coup d'etat that taking place that year
1: yeah um you got to kind of piece this together through evidence that we we've We subsequently learned uh after two thousand and eight, and one was there's a there's a Michael Moore film called um capitalism Love Story that he made in two thousand and nine and it's it's not a it's not a particularly good film, but there's some interviews in it it's like whoa and one of his interviews is with Marcy captor, who's a representative in Congress from Toledo i think and another one was with Elijah Cummings from Maryland. But the better interview is Marcy Kaptur. And he asked her, he says, she, she's saying, because basically she, she recounts the episode of TARP, which was, it comes up for a vote on September 29th. The House votes it down. And then it it recycles and comes back up for a vote that Friday. So just mm-hmm. four or five days later, comes back up for a vote in the House. <clears throat> The House passes it. And Mm -hmm. it's like, well, what happened in between? And what happened in between is 55 people changed their vote. And Captor says, you know, basically a lot of pressure was applied. She says it was like a military operation. She says it was very, very precise, very organized, very top level, very professional. And Michael Moore then asked her, he says, well, would it be fair to say that there was a coup d'état, a financial coup d'état, and and she said, "Yeah, that'd wow. be fair. And so it's like, "Whoa!" I mean, that's that's pretty that's pretty heavy. But you forget about that because it's a Michael Moore film, and he, he directs it back to himself. But that's a that's a key that's a major, um, statement Absolutely. By member of Congress. And then the other thing is, you know, TARP passed on Friday, October third um you know under kind of weird circumstances where 55 people changed their vote in the space of a week and then on on monday the october 6th um we learned this through wikipedia i think you know this i think this came out in maybe 2017. you always have to go back you get a new piece of information you got to circle back and look at stuff okay but there was an email, and everybody made a big deal about this email, because it was like, with the email from Citigroup to John Podesta, who was an organizer in Obama's campaign. I, I don't know, he was the campaign manager or, or chief of staff or something something on that level. And the email was from a guy, I think his name was Froman on Citigroup. And this comes out, everybody's, everybody's on the Podesta for all the, all the other stuff, the circ the sideshow, right? But it's like Podesta was a—he was a major figure in Obama's administration. And the email from Citigroup says, "Hey, you know, we were me and the fellows are just sitting around the water cooler, yeah, just kicking around some ideas about who maybe Obama's cabinet members might be." This is this is in October. This is before the election. Okay. And this email says, hey, Podesta, we're kicking around some ideas about who is cabinet members. might be. Here's some names we came up with. And they, and they sent this list. It's in a Word document attached to that email. And you open that Word document. And it's like, holy shit, every single name in there. I mean, they basically got 90% of the cabinet correct. Wow. And it's like, well, wait a minute. Citigroup, out of all the banks that were bankrupt at that time, Citigroup was the worst. It got the most TARP money got 45 billion it was tied with bank of america it hands down got the most fed money it borrowed 2.5 trillion dollars from the Citigroup was flat broke Citigroup was trading at a dollar by by march of 2009 it was so bad they had to do a reverse 10 for one split to prop the stock price up right mm-hmm. <laughs> it was so pathetic holy there was the the bank the, the city the city group was broke so, what in what in you know, what on earth is Citigroup doing telling the Obama team who its cabinet? Is? So, in other words, there was a deal made between the Obama camp and some major, you know, major financial heavy hitters. And it was just Citigroup happened to be the delivery boy. Okay. That's that's my read of that. I mean, but that email is that's that's a that's a breathtaking email, especially given the timing. I mean, they don't even they, they wait till they wait. They get TARP on Friday and Monday. The cabinet of Obama is announced by Citigroup.
0: By Citigroup. It, it reminds me of stuff that I've heard you say before, where the, things things don't happen in three days. This is obviously something that was, <laughs> exactly. was planned well in advance. And, and Obama, what did Obama get out of this? A, a virtual guarantee that he'd be elected?
1: You tell me. I, I don't know. I mean, but you if you look at what was what happened to Citigroup after that, you know, Obama was Obama later on talked about, you know, winding down some of the banks, including Citigroup. And um, he was he was in it. Remember, he had Larry Summers was was his, was in his administration, you know, and, and a few people, you know, the, the, some heavy hitters. We're in his administration, and we're behind him. And they were like, "Yeah, Obama, that's good. Let's let's get rid of. Let's wind down, meaning let's just put some of these banks nationalize. Maybe you know a couple a bank or two as a test case. And Citigroup was going to be one of them, but Obama was opposed by Tim Geithner. Tim Geithner being the Treasury Secretary, mm-hmm. and Geithner wins, and Geithner is a connected dude." There is no doubt about that. If you read Matt Stoller, you don't have to read Geithner's book. read Matt Stoller's review of Geithner's book I and mean, even Matt Stoller, who's like the you know a classic liberal like you if you breathe the word conspiracy theory, he's gonna shit his pants. yeah but even he's like, oh come on Tim. I mean what is you know what what the hell this guy's he's got stories like I was in business school at Dartmouth one night i was just playing pinball you know it was a wednesday night and the phone rings and it's you know henry kissinger wants to give me a job and stoller's <laughs> like oh come on you know this is ridiculous this guy's a middle-of-the-road b student henry kissinger's calling him you know who is this guy what are his connections what's his deal but anyway he geithner was for sure in control of that administration because remember geithner had been a new york fed president Yes. Under Bush. And then when Obama gets elected and assumes office, Geithner goes from the New York Fed to the to the Treasury. And Geithner, you know, Geithner, he's 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 the one guy nobody could ever lay a glove on in in congressional hearings. You remember Alan Grayson? Yes. For a liberal guy from Florida. He would see saw these guys in half. He get Bernanke up there. He got the general counsel of the Fed up there. Scott Alvarez. He ripped him and ripped him. To shreds he ripped elizabeth coleman to shreds of the fed. i mean he was ripping people apart geithner he couldn't lay a glove on geithner geithner wow. def- def- deflected grayson like he was just a pissant like get you know who are you so the-
0: so so geithner's presence in the obama administration is a major puzzle piece of what you of what you call a coup d'etat and i know from hearing you on rfk juniors podcast it also connects to the to your um video of all the plenary's men where geithner plays a, uh, a role there yeah. as, if nothing else as a liaison but so, like you said somebody who's just connected and seems to be calling more shots in the administration than the president himself
1: yeah yeah he geithner was the point man geithner is the guy i to me he geithner tim geithner is the closest thing that politics has seen to a kaiser soze ever. I mean, he, he's he's close to the source of power. Very close to me. Because he gets out, you know, look, where does he go when, once he gets out of the Obama administration? He goes to work for Warburg. You know, Warburg was knee-deep in creating the Fed back in 1913. Geithner is a connected guy. Geithner is the kind of guy, he's, he takes care of details, too. I mean, in a way, I've got a grudging admiration for Geithner. Geithner is the kind of guy who buys his own liquor. He doesn't send some lackey to do it. He goes to the kiosk himself and gets that bottle. <laughs> and I actually happen to know that. But he, he's, he's, he, he doesn't make mistakes. And he was the guy that the BIS was going through, the Bank for International Settlements. Whenever a message had to be delivered to, say, the Justice Department, like, back down on the prosecutions, it was Geithner. And whenever yeah. someone had to stand up to Obama and say, no, 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 ain't going to work that way, Barack. We're not winding down Citigroup. You know, I mean, that that came to a head. Geithner wins every time there's a rub and, and two forces come head to head and one of them is Geithner. Geithner wins. And this is documented. Ron Suskind documents this in a book called I think it's called Confidence Men.
0: So when you say Geithner is close to the source of power, how do you define the source of power, the global banks and the Fed? what What is your definition of that?
1: My definition is, is whoever owns the banks and whoever owns the Fed here here's the thing. Um you, that, that it took me a long time to understand. Um the the signal sovereign power in modern times, meaning say since seventeen hundred, is it is not military. It's it's money creation. That's that's a sovereign power, the, the ability Coin money and the ability to create credit out of thin air—that's that's the definitive sovereign power. Remember, Machiavelli th- thought it was—you know—he he thought it was—you know—soldiers, right? He was—he was like, "Well, it's the military," because you know, steel can take money, but money can't necessarily take steel. And then by the early 1800s, you have Jefferson saying, "No, nah, no, nah, you got it backwards. It's the other way around. You know, banks are more powerful than standing armies." And Jefferson's right about that. And what had changed in between Machiavelli and Jefferson was the ability to create massive amounts of money out of thin air by central banks. The standout example, and the first example uh, in modern times, being the Bank of England. And that's the power. So that's the power you want. Is the you know? So if you look at our system that we live in, we really don't have the rule of law. We've got a two. We've got a two-tiered system. We've got 99.99% of people like you and me. We got to we got to borrow our money, mm-hmm. and then there's 0.01% of people who can create money out of thin air and lend it to everybody else at interest, right? That's the power. And every so every every other power is subordinate to that power. And in fact, if you look at law, I was surprised to read this. I did some legal research on this, and I was like, what the hell? That that, that you, during the Civil War in the United States when the rebels would take over an area um, Confederates and start printing their own money, legally that was later on recognized as legitimate money. And you wouldn't think that would be the case, but it is. No. Wow. Yeah. Because it was just like, well, they had the power. So, you know, it's, it's per se legitimate. And so that went, so back to your question is like, what do you define as the power? Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. It's the, it's the top level power of people who are able to create money out of thin air, and that's banks. In our system, you have two creators of money. One is, well, there's three, there's a treasury, but it only really creates coins. The next, The other two are the Fed and commercial banks. The Fed can create reserves out of thin air, commercial banks can create credit and deposits out of thin air. And the Fed can also create cash out of thin air, which is the real deal too. But whoever owns those members, the Fed is privately owned and so are the banks. So the owners of the Fed, chances are there's a huge overlap with the owners of the commercial banks. That's who I'm saying has whoever that owner is or those owners are. And we won't know because it's very opaque. That's that's who's calling the shots. So where I sit.
0: so these these are characters that. In the public discourse are essentially invisible like yeah like, we hear people now in light of 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 all the machinations related to the pandemic you hear people pretty casually and openly talking about world economic forum blackrock vanguard the great reset bill and melinda gates foundation and if i'm hearing you correctly these everyone i just named are one level below the people the invisible people who are the ones who who literally control all the money
1: yeah that's is that safe true. to say that's very safe to say because the people who can create money out of thin air they can snap the neck of of any of the any of the entities you just named quite easily they could bankrupt them wow easily. yeah i mean if you can print money out of thin air that's it you've got you've got the power right i mean and the fed really it's really the federal reserve that's the ultimate power because the fed, the, the fed can create money out of thin air with total impunity. Whereas commercial banks, yeah, they can't yeah, they can create they can like if you go to your commercial, if you can go to your bank and you borrow a million dollars, your bank creates that out of thin air. It's just it's just a ledger entry for a million dollars and now you have a deposit account at the at the bank for a million dollars. The problem is the bank is now exposed because you could turn around to that bank and say, hey, you know what? I thought about it. I want my million dollars in cash. I mean, if that bank can't come up with, you know, a million dollars in legal tender, meaning Federal Reserve notes, you know, you can undertake proceedings to put that bank out of existence. You know, whereas the Fed, since nineteen seventy one, it hasn't had any constraint like that. Up until seventy one, you know, there was the gold standard. And so certain people like Charles de Gaulle countries could say, Oh yeah, really? Your your dollars worth thirty five dollars per ounce of gold? Well, I've got $35 million and I've got a boat sitting in the harbor here. Uh, we're going to give you $35 million in Federal Reserve notes. Give us a million dollars of gold. And that, so that there was a constraint on the Fed up until 71. But that gold window closed under Nixon that year. And ever since then, the Fed's had power to create as much money as it wants with totally impunity. Whereas all of the other characters, World Economic Forum and Gates and BlackRock, yeah, they got a lot of money and they got a lot of assets. But they don't have that. They don't have the. They don't have the money creating power, hmm. which yes. the Fed does, and the yes. owners of the Fed do.
0: So do these like BlackRock, Vanguard, Gates, etc. Is this like a, a a conscious decision to give a false mask or face to the powers that be in the sense that the the this somewhat uh, enlightened person, and not everyone knows about BlackRock and Vanguard, but it doesn't take much to figure it out. Is it a way to deflect attention away from the from the long-standing powers who, could, like you said, could snap the back of them in a second? Or is it just all part of the system? Is, is it that... Planned out that they need to give us a figurehead like like um like no. a matador, like a matador waving a red cape like to distract us, or it's just the way the system plays out.
1: No, it's 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 a it's a way the system plays out. They need you, 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 somebody like BlackRock. You know they would BlackRock knows its role. BlackRock knows its place. BlackRock's role is it's got ten trillion dollars under management. BlackRock has you know awesome expertise at the, the management of massive of massive amounts of financial transactions and monetary transactions and massive amounts of assets BlackRock can organize a lot of stuff and God only knows what they've got with their promise software I mean you know who knows what they can do with all their software Blackrock is, is organizationally you know it's a power to be reckoned with I mean it's it's got 10 trillion dollars the US GDP is what 23 trillion I mean Blackrock's 10 trillion dollars I mean Blackrock's a country. Yeah, it's not that much power, except it's it completely, it's opaque. You know, it might file an annual report, but you're not going to. There's, there's no hearings of BlackRock. You don't learn anything about the innards of BlackRock. So BlackRock has a role. It's just not the top dog. You know, remember the Fed brought brought BlackRock in early on in the pandemic. I think in March, to help the Fed when it was going to ex- expand its balance sheet, supposedly to help out. You know, Main Street during this rough time of business closures and whatever else you know the whole yarn yeah fed trotted out well it bling who does it bring in to buy assets to the tune of three and a half or four trillion dollars brings in blackrock why because blackrock's got the bandwidth to do that the fed you know yeah it's big and it's powerful but it's it, it, it's not it's not that big it's not that many people working at the fed and it's got another problem which is it's, it's part of the fed at least the border governors is subject to the Freedom of Information Act request. So it's got to be sort of careful about what it does. Whereas BlackRock is a private company and it doesn't have to answer FOIA requests ever. Wow. They okay. didn't, didn't even have to undertake the pretense that it's going to answer FOIA. It's not a government entity.
0: Okay. That's so so it's it's in a is it would it be Somewhat analogous to the Fed sort of money laundering through a company where it's just like that no one's going to investigate them and we keep our hands clean relatively clean over here.
1: Yeah, it, it, um, yeah, that's that's a good way of putting it. Um, and the Fed does that in a lot of different ways. You like primary dealers is another way. You know, they the Fed only will do only do does transaction with primary dealers, and you know there's all these reasons for it. But one of the reasons to me, one of the principal reasons is you know after two years, the New York Fed will tell you, yeah, here are the, here are the people we bought assets from. okay? We bought assets, we bought treasuries from X, y and Z, and we bought mortgage-backed securities, from you know LMN PQ. But then you look at their list and it's it's the only the only people on the spreadsheets that you download from the New York Fed two years after those transactions are are, are, are made, the only people on the on the transactions are the primary dealers. So, in other words, the primary dealers add another layer of opacity where you can't really see, you know, who are you really buying the assets from? You'll never know that. Wow. Right?
0: It's fascinating. I I mean, infuriating at the same time.
1: Let me me get it this way. I did a video recently where I showed that the average person in the top 1% of the U.S., their checkable deposits increased by over $900,000 during the feds asset purchase program. Okay. The fact is though, you'll never know any, you'll never find out a single name of those people due to that layer of insulation provided by the primary dealers. Cause it's, it's like, well, let's say your neighbor Tom sold, you know, a piece of junk to the fed for a million dollars. Okay. Well, he's, how is he going to do that? Well, he's going to sell it. He's going to sell it through Goldman Sachs. Right. And Goldman Sachs is the primary dealer. So when you look at the spreadsheet from the Fed and you try to find that million-dollar transaction, you ain't going to see Tom's name. You're going to see Goldman's name. Okay. You see how that game is played?
0: Yeah, it's like it's like a mafia playbook taken yeah. to a trillion-dollar level.
1: Ding, ding, ding.
0: Wow. <laughs> wow. So, so I don't want to ask a naive question, but I feel like I want just want some – I just want to hear your answer to it. So where do – Figures like or organizations like the presidency, the CIA, the Department of Justice, the FBI. Where did are they just playing roles? Did, did, are they co-conspirators in some ways with these with these upper 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 echelons? Are they pawns in the game? Like because to the average person, they seem so incredibly powerful.
1: Yeah, well, I think I mean my, the way my view of them back to the back to the mob analogy is there's cop, they're capos, they're lieutenants. Right, mm-hmm. they're not the boss, you know. They they def, they are important players and they have a role. But you mentioned the DOJ. So let's take the DOJ as an example. Back to that Citigroup memo of October sixth, two thousand and eight, for to, that went to John Podesta. If you look at that memo, the top of the DOJ is identified. There, there's a, there's one other name there, but the main name is Eric Holder, and Eric Holder is part of a firm called Covington and Burling. Okay, that's coming from Citigroup so so four months later or three months later, when Eric Holder and his team from Covington is installed at the top of the DOJ, you know they they know their role, right? because Citigroup or whoever is behind behind Citigroup said, "Here's what we're going to do but wow. I, you know, I, that that's as, that's as detailed an answer as I can give you because b- because it comes down to I don't have transparency to this. i can only work from the documents i have i can't yeah you know know, you're limited but you can make a a a relatively
0: safe assumption that people who reach that capo level have internalized certain values that the that the godfather level is going to trust them with some basic duties that they kind of know they know how to play the game and to not and there isn't a version of of turning state uh, government witness, like there is like a RICO statutes to get mafia guys, there isn't a, currently a version right. of that because the upper, upper, upper echelon, as you've pointed out many times, are literally above the law, like yeah. like un- unprosecutable.
1: Right, Not, no, it's beyond that, it's beyond that. What we, learned in, what we learned in the wake of the global financial crisis, very, very late in Obama's first term, we found out that the question really wasn't are you being prosecuted we knew they weren't the real question was is these are these wall street banks being investigated and the answer are they being investigated and the answer to that is no they weren't being investigated and that was the that was the bell ringer disclosure for martin smith's the untouchables on pbs you know pbs frontline did that special and it's toward the end He's like, you know, Martin Smith, asked Lanny Brewer, who's number two at the DOJ. He says, you know, our sources tell us that when it came to Wall Street, there were no investigations going on. There were no subpoenas. There were no document reviews, no wiretaps. And Brewer squirms, but doesn't deny it because he can't. They weren't investigated. Wow! If, if you think about that for a minute, you know, and compare that to what we know about the U.S. president, president can be investigated. Remember, 1974, Nixon tries to tries to say, now, now, I, I don't have to answer all the subpoena. I can just pick and choose which parts of the subpoena I want to answer due to executive privilege. That goes to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court says, no, 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 no. You got that wrong. Answer the subpoena. And two weeks later, Richard Nixon is the 37th ex-president. Wow. But when it comes to Wall Street, they're, they're, they're no subpoena, no document review, no wiretap, nothing no investigation at all tell me where did they get that power that's not, that, that they didn't get that from the president the president don't have that power
0: it's it's like self anointed power based on like you said this this unique um quality of being able to print money out of thin air and it, it, yeah, i think you've called what the fed has done essentially a silent takeover
1: yeah that's essentially that's essentially a, 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 the way to look at it it's a silent takeover and it's, you know, largely it's it's largely an opaque takeover, but there are plenty of clues along the way. And it's just a matter of, you know, I try to look through the historical record. And when something like the Podesta email comes out, it adds a little bit to the body of knowledge and you go back and, it, you know, maybe puts other things in context.
0: Wow. So. So what's what's like you you said in at one point er, earlier on when we were talking being an engineer and then a lawyer and then you, you said you shifted into something closer to an activist what the implication of the term activist is that you're trying to change things or bring down powers or expose powers if if these cartels are this huge. What do you tell someone who wants to feel like, hey, I, I'm informed and I'm not afraid to know what who was really in charge And I'm getting better at asking the right questions. Like where do they start? I mean, can a, a, a collective movement of everyday people fight back in any way against these cartels with the power that they've um, they've assumed and then the next layer down, is sort of like that buffer that's you know like people that we think are so powerful political parties will will fight to the death over over who over this senator versus that senator and the way you describe it the people above that just don't even pay attention to such things because whichever senator wins is going to genuflect in front of them what what's left no. for the, what's left for the huge leftover population of people to, to, to do to get back some autonomy and so- sovereignty
1: um shame your rulers shame your leaders that's that's really it Get, I mean, glenn Greenwald gave a speech about the rule of law at yale law school in 2011 and he makes a great point he's like look the rule of law is not meaning you know we have the, we have our our the law is our boss not our rulers he said that's an ideal but it's not really realistic he said the the, the reality is the power of the rule of law boils down to being able to shame your leaders, or being able to make put, instill fear into your leaders, and say, "Oh yeah, you really have the rule of law. You really if we're all equal under the law. Well, why do these people got to sit at the back of the bus?" And you make them eat what they're saying, like, "Oh well, you know, make them defend what they're doing," and you bring shame to the table, and you just say, "Listen, you can't. You know, you got to have a lot of popular support of of, of people saying you and condemning leaders." When they do things that are qu- they're so obviously done to support the point oh one percent or whatever it is, when they're just completely flouting the will of the people, that's really the only recourse you have. So it's a combination of it's it's voting activism, it's you know just raising the hell basically, and holding and, leaders feet to the fire,
0: and perhaps also not being so susceptible to the false conflicts that they. Uh, get us to engage in because so many politically aware and passionate people that I know line up with the party lines, yeah, and and see the yeah. other party as as we should be seeing the upper echelon that you've been talking about for this whole interview, where. If let's say you're a Democrat, you look at the Republicans with the type of, of like hatred and contempt that should be aimed at the Fed and the and the, and the big banks like that you we were talking about that can that control everything. But instead, they have us being so malleable into the say for for example the two party system or CNN versus Fox, yeah. and and if there can be some sense of putting aside some of the purity litmus tests and saying, no, you got, to, you got to grab your allies where you can. You don't have to march in lockstep, but you have to recognize who the real um, opposition is and how high up it goes.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of um, divide and conquer going on. And there's a lot of chew toys thrown out there <clears throat> that wear you out, you know, chewing away on the wrong thing.
0: That, that's that's an excellent analogy because yeah it, you're just so proud of yourself biting into these chew toys saying like yeah. oh I got my teeth into this one I'm gonna win this one and then you just get tired and take a nap and <laughs> and, and the yeah. and the Fed is is printing more money you know or doing they, whatever they've they, they
1: conjured money out of thin air and they've given it to their friends Jesus you know
0: wow so so what's next for you where, where where is this um, passion and this this um, real skill that you have of aiming this investigative journalism type of mind towards um, exposing this? What what's next for John Titus?
1: Well, I'm doing a, I'm working on a series called Murder Murder of a Rebel Nation to sort of lay out the coup d'état that's happened in the U.S. Because you know I'm getting older. I'm like well, you know at some point you know my goal is lay a record because I think this law is going to collapse in in the dust um and um, you know what i want to do before i leave this earth is leave a record so that maybe people on the other side when they're sifting through the rubble they they have a chance of figuring out what went wrong
0: so what what gives you that sense dare i say of optimism that these these groups this this system is going to crumble into dust
1: <laughs> <laughs> um I don't, I don't have another choice Because If I I look at the alternative and I say, well, you know, I really think it's going to be a thousand years of slavery. I'm not going to get out of bed in the morning.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I didn't mean that as a cynical question. I was actually, I I actually, (laughs) it was almost like I was uh, uh, sifting for gold. Like, is there something that we can cling on to and like, all right, there's, there's, there's a kernel that can be like, all right, this, 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 this could happen, but that's a beautiful answer anyway.
1: Well, I think, I think that, that the realistically, the stakes are getting so much bigger and concentrated in in, in fewer and fewer hands, and it's not just fewer and fewer hands; it's fewer it's hands of people who are absolutely incompetent, it's just breathtakingly inept people at these levels. The, the, the disaster it, it's just a tinderbox in search of a in search of a flame, and it's going to find one eventually.
0: I have to agree with you. I, I've, I've heard myself saying to people quite often who express a sense of, of gloom and doom and hopelessness, I was like, it seems like I call them powers that shouldn't be. I say the powers that shouldn't be in many cases are overplaying their hand. There is an arrogance and there's a long history in human history yep. of arrogance playing a role. And it, there will be a vacuum in which informed and united, people can make a difference. And but to bring it back to the simplicity of what you said, it's the type of mission and passion that gets you out of bed in the morning, as opposed to saying, "Ah, why bother?" And yes. there's, al- there's always a reason to bother. And there also there are there are next generations, as you said, to leave a record behind and save them the trouble of doing all the work you're doing now, because you've left this record yeah. behind. if
1: it if it really if it weren't an open question, the powers that be wouldn't be fighting as hard as they are. To shovel us misinformation 24 7.
0: Excellent point. Yeah, you're right. It's, it's propaganda would be unnecessary if, yeah. we, were, if we were already fully inside. And I got to
1: tell you, the aroma of desperation is becoming a lot thicker on a lot of that propaganda.
0: I'd have to say I concur with that. Well, so I'm sorry. Absolutely.
1: So that gives me optimism too. It's like the stories you're selling now are so ridiculous that people I would never have given credit to a year ago even they see through it yeah yeah
0: yeah. I, I have to say i see the same it's it's this it's this slow um erosion like just just the, the the blind faith that we've been conditioned to have in the in this entire structure and system is being slowly eroded away by the the almost in some cases the sheer insanity of of how people are the people in charge are behaving and you people are asking questions and this is where the the interconnectedness of the internet could actually work in our favor where the, the to get information like your your like you're sharing is at the tip of our fingertips and if this were 30 years ago we'd be going to libraries and looking through you know Dewey Decimal system and trying to find this information yeah. and, and now it's like I'm gonna include in the show notes a link to your YouTube, a link to your Substack. Everything is just a link a, a click away and then you trust that a skeptical curious mind is going to do something productive with this information and the hard work that you've put into it
1: yeah right there more and more people are doing what you and i are doing
0: absolutely i i well john i just want to say number one first and foremost thank you for making time to talk with me and sharing your your hard work your passion and your your wisdom and just thank you for what you do because i I, I I have to admit, I just came into awareness of you through the Defender podcast. I, I'm regretting that I hadn't been following you all along, but now I'm going to be, and I hope that my listeners will do the same and continue to spread the word because you just don't know where this ripple effect will take us. So you you know you can take pride in the effort you're putting in and, and it, know that it's appreciated.
1: Great. Yeah. Well, it's good, good to have the opportunity, Mickey, and it's nice to meet you.
0: Likewise. It's been a pleasure, and I hope we can stay in touch.
1: Yeah. Sounds good, man. Thanks so much. Yeah.
0: Okay. I'll be right back with my story of the week right after one more word from our sponsor. Hey, Mickey Z again. I trust you're enjoying this episode. And if so, I would really, really appreciate it if you would become a paid subscriber. For just $5 a month, less than 17 cents a day, you can support this Substack and this podcast. Your help is essential and it's crucial and it's you who keeps this project going and growing. So thank you for listening. Thank you in advance for becoming a paid subscriber and please spread the word. And while you're at it, please check the show notes for a link to a really kick-ass post-woke t-shirt. The sales have been going up. People are out there showing off what their favorite podcast is. And now it's time for you to join the team. So once again, thank you in advance and let's get back to the show. All this talk about essentially world domination, reminds me of a game I used to play with a friend of mine way back in the day, like in fifth grade, a game called Risk. If you don't know what it is, I suggest you look it up. So I was friends with this guy, James, like I said, around the fifth grade. And we would play the game I mentioned, Risk. Sometimes we would play for days. We would cover up the board and come back to it the next day. And when we did this, I always would start by fortifying myself in the Australia area and going from there. So what a lesson for young minds. Conquest, war, domination, deception. But over time, I got cool and James didn't. He would linger on the fringes of my in-group, but was never fully accepted. Too short, not a good enough athlete, but the only cool thing about him was his really long hair and the fact that his older sister was considered hot by all of us. Eventually, me and James ended up going to the same high school, one that you had to take the local subway a couple of stops to. And the, I remember one day, like, so we knew each other in that high school, but even then we weren't really close. I mean, initially. Being two brand new kids in a school who knew each other since like the first grade, we hung out a little bit or would ride the train together, but over time we drifted into our own friend groups. But I remember very early on in freshman year, I was on the train. Um, it's called the N train now but back then it was the RR or we called it the double R and i already was sitting down and it was the elevated train and i heard someone yelling hold the door and it was james running up running for the train up the stairs now i wasn't anywhere near the door to hold it but I just was watching this whole thing play out. So he reaches the top of the stairs and makes a pretty graceful jump in through the closing doors. And he looks sort of like a hurdler, one foot in front, one foot behind. A different kind of risk, you might say. All appeared well in his 14-year-old world. But in a moment of astonishing synchronicity, his rear foot was a fraction too late, a fraction of a second too late. The thin doors closed perfectly on the sole of his shoe, rendering James horizontal, three feet in the air, parallel to the filthy subway car's floor. I mean, what were the odds? Everyone on the train watched as his books flew from his hands and he reflexively broke his fall. He landed on his stomach, his foot breaking free of the door's grasp in the process. James looked around sheepishly, humiliated in front of so many fellow students. He grabbed his books and shuffled into a corner. He didn't see me and I made no move to comfort him. I'm not proud of this, but I didn't want to risk being associated with him. The moral of this story, peer pressure is a powerful entity at any age. So I urge you, please keep your guard up.